Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Um, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. Um, as Annie said, my name is Ryan and I'm pastor here. And uh, this is really exciting. Today is the first Sunday in Advent. Thank you, sweet brother. Appreciate that. Um, today is the first Sunday in Advent. Um, not, not everybody grew up understanding what Advent is. This is essentially the church's new year. So happy new year. This is when we begin our calendar all over again. So last Sunday was Christ the King Sunday. We kind of wrap up the church year by by centering in on Jesus being Lord of all and King of all. And now we begin to tell ourselves the story all over again. And that's really what the church calendar is for, is to walk us through the story of Jesus, to reacquaint us to it time and again, so that it continues to invest itself deep within who we are. And Advent is really special because it's us looking forward to Christ. Christmas. You know, tragically, I think for a lot of us, we anticipate Christmas as this one day out of the year, and then it arrives, we open some presents, maybe we go to church, maybe we don't, and then it's kind of over. Um, but it's actually more of a season, and it should be this constant celebration that we're really honing in on um, in, the, in this particular Advent season. And what we're looking at is that we look back to remember the story of Jesus, the arrival of God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. And we're looking back at how God uh, came to rescue the world in that tiny little baby. And that gives us hope and confidence to look forward to his second coming. Because now we know what he looks like. Now we know what he sounds like. And we know that we don't have to be afraid. And so over the next four Sundays, we're going to be looking at the traditional themes of Advent. Today we're going to be looking at hope. Next week, peace. After that, joy. And then finally, on Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at love. And so I'm going to pray. Um, I'm really excited. I think the Lord's got a lot for us here this evening uh, with hope. Not just like pie-in-the-sky hope, but real, gritty, tangible hope. And I think he wants to really um, free up a lot of you here uh, with a message of hope, that the, the Christmas message really becomes a message of good news. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for this Advent season that um, we get to come together, we get to start telling the story to ourselves all over again, uh, and, and we get to start um, with that, that special night, the, the, the moment that the, the writers of the Gospels and, and, and the, the writers of the New Testament themselves really saw as the moment when everything began to change. Um, we get to, to live in that, Lord. I, I, Lord, I just pray in this season for each one of us, you would teach us what Emmanuel really means. What does it really mean for us to witness to, to invest ourselves in the reality that you are with us and that you're for us, you're not against us. Uh, and, and, and Lord, there's so much that you wanna do tonight. I pray that we would all be open to that possibility of hope. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. And so let's talk about hope. Hope is the trajectory of God's redemption, his God's redemptive love, and a promise he will finish what he started. And so the main text I want to use today is one that's potentially unfamiliar to you and is usually kind of obscure. A couple of years ago, someone cornered me in the cafe and they said, is this a church that preaches the whole Bible? And I immediately said, no, nobody does that, but we're working on it. 
And this would be a really great example of one of those bits of the Bible that it's kind of hard to teach on. It's hard to stand up here and and to speak it out. And of course, I'm speaking of Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses, where Matthew chooses to start his gospel with a genealogy. Now, if you were sitting down to write the great American novel, you would probably not start by writing out 60 generations of random names before you even get to your hero. You know, a lot of us, we read the first page of the book or we watch the first five minutes of the movie, and if it hasn't already gripped us with some sort of conflict or drama or compelling character, we're already out of there. So in that spirit, if we were to step into the Gospel of Matthew and we start reading all these names, we'd be like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> it's all right. I'm going to move on. I'm going to skip ahead. Maybe we'll jump into the Sermon on the Mount or something more interesting. But I think Matthew is very particular in the way that he chooses to start his gospel because he wants to say this gospel begins with hope. And that's really one I want us to focus in on this evening. There's going to be kind of three movements uh, to the message tonight where we're going to look at how hope looks back and redeems the past, how hope blesses our present moment, and then how hope gives us vision for the future. So uh, I'm going to read to you the genealogy of Jesus according to Matthew. So exciting. And I also get to show off how well I can pronounce these Hebrew names. Are you ready? Here we go. One of the weirdest bits of the Bible. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, which by the way, if you're looking for a baby name, you don't mean a lot of salmons anymore. Uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Again, another great baby name you don't hear anymore. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And we all remember how that went. Okay, <clears throat> the last 14, we're going to do it together just to spice it up. So ready? Here we go. I'm going to say it, and then you're going to come in with the father of. So after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of? (laughs) See, you're starting off easy. Shealtiel, the father of? (laughs) Zerubbabel, the father of? Abihud, the father of? Eliakim, the father of? Azor, the father of? Zadok, the father of? Akim, the father of? Elihud, the father of? Eleazar, the father of? Mathen, the father of, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. There were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Why start here? This is so strange, but we have to remember that that Matthew is writing for a primarily Jewish audience, and so we have to understand how would a Jewish audience have read this, because for them, genealogies are incredibly important. 
Because what Matthew is trying to tell his Jewish audience is the, the, the lineage of Jesus is your lineage. They would have known these names. They would have known these stories. They would have seen in it the heroes, the villains, the insiders, the outsiders, all of these different people that make up the, the genetic blueprint of Israel up until the time of Jesus. But it's not only the, the names that they recognize, it's also the breaks in the rhythm. Uh, Jewish poetry is full of these rhythms, and we kind of feel it with the so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, and the father of so-and-so. And he chooses to break it up. Number one, we have a lot of women's names, which is not typical. And so he's telling us very specific things. When we see the names Tamar and Rahab, we know who those people are. When we see Ruth, we know who she is. We also see other moments where it says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, if you were to say anything about King David, would you really have brought up that whole incident? Kind of the low point in David's life, right? But what Matthew is telling his audience is look at all of these different stories, all the lives these people lived. Some of them were so faithful and upright. Some of them were actual outsiders. They're not actually Jewish. They were Gentiles that married in. Some of them did terrible things. Some of these stories we'd rather forget We'd rather pretend like these people didn't exist. How many of you have those family members and you survived last week and you're here, you got all your fingers and toes? You know, but Jesus's family had some of those people that maybe you would rather not admit to. And Matthew is making this really powerful point by starting with the genealogy of Jesus in his good news, in his gospel, to say all of these people, all of these stories, all of these moments and events in the past all of them were redeemed the moment that that little baby was born in Bethlehem. Not only this, but he weaves in kind of a second layer, and this is absolutely fascinating to me. You see, he, he goes out of his way at the very end of it to say there were three groups of 14. Now, if you know math, you know that three 14s is how many groups of seven? Six, you can be confident in that number. That's, you, you did well, you passed the fourth grade. Yes, so three groups of 14 is six groups of seven. Now, in Jewish numerology, seven is a number that symbolizes completeness or wholeness or fulfillment. And so what we see in the genealogy of Jesus is six groups of seven, which means that Jesus being born is the beginning of the seventh seven, which means that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire story. You see, Matthew is even writing in this deeper subcontext to say, all of this, it was all worth it. It was all worth it, the good and the bad and the ugly, because it brought about the birth of our Messiah. And so Jesus, or Matthew, is telling his Jewish audience all of this journey finds its climax in this Messiah. And it's so beautiful because it ties in with this series that we've been doing, Signposts in the Mist, where we've been looking at how the Old Testament is continually pointing us down the road towards Jesus. And we see that Matthew and so many of the other writers of the Gospels and the Epistles are doing that same thing. They keep tying the story to show this is how it was all meant to be fulfilled. But I think this is why the genealogy of Jesus is so important for us to begin this conversation. Hope has to bless the past before it can point to future redemption. God wastes nothing along the way. If we're gonna talk about hope, sometimes we're automatically thinking about a future. But hope starts by blessing the past. And it's important that we recognize God wastes nothing, and that's his choice to do that. And we see this repeated in the first five chapters of Matthew, 
Matthew chooses to tell the story of Jesus in such a way that it echoes the story of Israel, specifically through the story of Exodus. When Jesus is born, the king is threatened by his presence and has all babies under the age of two murdered, which is just like what happened in the time of Moses. Jesus has to run away to Egypt for a time. He's in exile, but then he comes out of Egypt just as Israel came out of Egypt. When we fast forward the story to Jesus' adulthood, he comes to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Red Sea, and John's like, I don't really understand. You want me to baptize you? I should be uh, baptized by you, not you by me. And Jesus says, this is to fulfill the story. And so Jesus is baptized in the Jordan echoing Israel, moving from exile in Egypt into freedom, being baptized through the Red Sea. And where does Jesus immediately go after he's baptized? He walks into the desert for 40 days to test his reliance on God. What happens to Israel after they pass through the Red Sea? They're in the desert for 40 years, learning how to rely on God before they enter into the Promised Land. And what happens while they're in the desert is Israel bumps into a mountain, Mount Sinai, And it's there that God gives them the Ten Commandments. And what happens when Jesus comes out of the time of the desert is he begins to preach the good news and he arrives at another mountain and gives us what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is ground zero for us as Christians. You see, Matthew's making these very intentional decisions in how he tells the Jesus story to to show Israel God doesn't waste any of it. In fact, he, he goes back into the past and he draws all of these stories and symbols and events into the present moment so that they can be redeemed before we move into a new creation. You know, tonight we sang that, that first verse from the, the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I love that last stanza, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. A lot of times we feel like in in the church we're not able to be our whole selves. There's this shadow side to us. There's this place of shame and guilt. There's these these things that we've done in our past or or that we've believed or whatever it might be. And, And somewhere along the way we've picked up this idea that in order to be presentable to God we have to ignore that that we say, well, it's, it's over and it's done and it's in the past and I don't have to go back there, but we haven't really dealt with it. We've just ignored it and pretend like it doesn't exist. And I think even this, this song challenged us as our hopes and our fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. They're met in that moment with Jesus. You know, we think that we can only move forward in our stories if we pretend like the past didn't happen. But the problem with that mentality is that we continue to act out of the past without realizing it. When we just ignore our past, this is our personal past, but this is also our family's past, this is our, gene- our personal genealogies. When we ignore all of that and pretend like it doesn't exist, for some reason we continue to subconsciously live out of that place and we wonder why we get stuck in these cycles of sin. Even in the Old Testament it talked about this and we're beginning to realize how true this is in our, in our modern day with psychology, but old, time and again the Old Testament talked about how curses would last out to the fourth generation, but blessings to the thousandth. There's this moment where God comes to Jeremiah and he says, I want you to gather together all the people of Israel and have them confess the sins of their forefathers. And Jeremiah says, why would we do that? We're not responsible for what they did. But God is actually challenging Israel to own their own story, even if it's not their personal responsibility, but to confess it, to give it over to God and allow him to redeem it. I think that's what God is inviting each of us to do in our own lives too. If we are to be a people of hope, 
We can't ignore our pasts. We can't pretend like it never happened or it doesn't exist, but that we actually invite the Lord to go back to our past with us to bless it so that we can move forward in freedom. Several years ago, uh, I was at home in Virginia with my parents, and and for several years, uh, my mom really struggled with fibromyalgia, and if you know anything about that terrible disease, uh, one of the things is very hard to to sleep. You're in incredible pain all the time, and and so one night, I was kind of rummaging around late at night, and she kind of came to the top of the stairs, and she yelled at me to to cut down the noise, uh, you know, because she was trying to sleep or whatever, and immediately what happened to me, maybe this happens to you when you're around your parents, is you just kind of retreat to when you were like 12 years old. Am I the only one, or does anybody else do that? You know, I was about 27, and my mom yelled at me, and I became a prepubescent 12-year-old child again. I was a late bloomer, so, you know, 10 10 years old, whatever. I'm not ashamed to admit it. And so I'm lying in bed that night, and I'm thinking, Lord, why does this keep happening? You know, I go home once, twice a year, and there'll always be this moment where I just retreat. It's like I devolve and I become a child again. Like I've, I feel like I've grown up and I understand who I am a little bit more and I've been on this path of growth and self-awareness, but there's these moments when I keep falling back into these old patterns. And, and this does not happen to me very often, but the Lord gave me this really powerful vision and I'll never forget it. So I, lying in bed, I'm kind of asking this question, Lord, like show me why I keep doing this. And he showed me my mom and kind of the way that she is. And um, she, she's uh, very strong convictions of right and wrong. She's a very justice-oriented person. And sometimes that's where we find conflict. Um, but she showed me my maternal grandfather, um, you know, who I, I kind of grew up with, you know, him, with him living in Ireland. We only saw each other every few years. I mean, he's a re- he was a really good man. Uh, everybody on the island knew him, and he knew everybody, and whatever you needed, he, if he couldn't fix it, he could find the guy down the road that can fix it. He's that sort of guy. But he, he uh, raised my mom and her sister in those very principled ways. That there's right and there's wrong. There's a very strong personality. And that's where my mom learned it from in all of her you know, beautiful, uh, best attributes, and in all of those places that in her moment of weakness, maybe she becomes less compassionate. And I began to see, okay, this is the environment that she was raised in. This is how she learned how to maneuver the world. But then the really interesting thing was that the Lord began to show me my maternal great-grandfather, whom uh, I never met. He died way before I was even born, and he was a blacksmith, lived on this little farm, had four boys, and, and uh, you know, I, knew, I know very little about him, but he was a very hard man. So where my grandfather even uh, is a pretty compassionate man, his father wasn't. He was very distant and kind of you know, ruled through a very certain kind of authority. And, I, and so through this vision that the Lord gave me, I realized this is actually the way that my grandfather was raised. You see, that's the, that generational thing. This is how we pass down. You realize for, for each of you, you subconsciously imprint upon your parents, this is what it means to be an adult. This is why men, if you're not aware of it, you will become your father in marriage. And women, if you're not aware of it, you will become your mother in marriage because you subconsciously imprinted. That's what it looks like. And when you become a parent, same thing. You will subconsciously parent in the way that you were raised, whether it's all the good attributes and all of the bad. This is how those generational blessings and curses operate. So this vision actually didn't stop there. The Lord turned my attention to my paternal side. And my dad, if my mom is a a woman of justice, my, my dad is a man of mercy. And my father's the middle of five children, and he had an alcoholic father. 
And he told me once, you know, they never knew when dad came home if he was going to be angry drunk dad or goofy drunk dad. It was always kind of a crapshoot who was going to show up at the door, but they had to prepare for either scenario. And quite frequently, my dad, as the middle child, would take beatings on behalf of his two younger siblings and his mother. And he learned growing up through an aggressive alcoholic father how to take blows for somebody else, which is why I think he's so merciful. But the kind of negative aspect of that is that you can learn how to passively receive, but never to actually truly defend. And so I realized through this vision the Lord gave me, all of these stories of all of these people, some of them I know and some of them I don't, they're all met in who I am. They're all woven into my DNA. But once the Lord gives me the awareness of my inheritance, the good and the bad, then the option there when he shines his light in those things is say, What are we going to bless and what are we going to redeem? What are the things that I want to carry on into your next generation and what are the things that I want to die with your part of the story? And it became this really powerful moment late at night with the Lord where he began to set me free from some of those things and it dramatically changed my relationship with my parents for the better. But those questions, what is it in your lineage, in your heritage, in your story that God wants to bless, that he wants to move on to the next generation. But what are the things that maybe he wants to redeem, the things that are holding you back, the stories that you keep living out for some reason, but you don't really know why? And so we wanna take kind of the first pause right here and and do a a, a practice of prayer called theophostics, which means uh, to shine the light of God. And it's basically allowing the light of God to shine into those dark places the little nooks and crannies of our story that maybe we would rather not bring up in casual conversation, the things that we would rather not admit to. So what we're gonna do is I'm just gonna pray and I'm gonna invite the Holy Spirit uh, to come and to reveal to you without condemnation, without shame, without guilt, any of those broken places in your story. Maybe it's your personal story or maybe it's your family heritage. And then we're gonna do something um, a little bit more bold after that, but we're gonna just begin by inviting the Holy Spirit to reveal to us those places of brokenness. Uh, So Holy Spirit, again, we testify that you're here um, and that you're with us and that you want to do some work. Uh, And and Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom and there's not condemnation. And so Holy Spirit, we invite you right now um, to, to meet each one of us and to show us an event or a moment that becomes the foundation of brokenness in our lives. Something that holds us back. Something unredeemed or raw. When you feel like the Lord has shown his light on a moment or an event, something that was said to you, something that was done to you. The second, and I think more bold thing to do, is just to invite Jesus to reveal to you where he was in that moment. Because as Christians, we don't believe that Jesus is somewhere out there and maybe someday possibly he's going to come back. But he's always been right there with us waiting for these moments to redeem. So Jesus, in each of those stories, 
we ask you, just reveal to us, where were you? How did you see that scenario? What are the things that you were speaking over us in that moment? And Jesus, we pray that the visions that you would give us right now would be that healing touch that we need to let go of a part of our story uh, that begs for that kind of redemption so that we can move deeper into your hope. Lord, thank you that you waste nothing. You don't scrap parts of our story. You don't pretend like they don't exist. But you look back at our past and you say, I can do something with that. That's what your sovereignty is, Lord, your ability to turn curses into blessings. Lord, I pray that all of the stories that you're bringing up within us in this room tonight, those would become the exact stories that we share with people that begin to give them hope of redemption and reconciliation. That we can come alongside of people in our family, in, in, in our friends, in our workplace, at school, wherever it might be, and to say, I actually know how you feel. I actually know what that scenario is like. But let me share with you the hope that I have in a Jesus who chooses to meet us in our past, to bring healing to our past so we can move into his certain future. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And so hope redeems our past. Hope gathers up all the good bits and the bad bits and draws them into the present so they find themselves redeemed by Jesus. But hope also does something to the present moment. Hope blesses the present moment. In Colossians 1, Paul uses this Christ hymn. It's this really beautiful way. It's almost like this heavenly perspective of seeing the, the Christmas story. You know, if Matthew and Mark and Luke and their tellings of the birth of Jesus had that earthly image of the, you know, the baby in the manger and the, the angels and the shepherds and the magi and Mary and Joseph there, then Paul is telling the story, but from a totally different place. Paul gives this heavenly perspective that we lay over top of the Christmas story, and this is how he chooses to tell that story. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. This is what I mean about Jesus being there at every moment, not just in our personal past, but in every moment along history. Jesus was present in some way or another, waiting for that moment of redemption, waiting to rescue the human story. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so God in Christ, it pleased him to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. And if you can imagine that nativity scene, it it seems so counterintuitive that that's what God looks like. Like all of God is present in that. It's not a hint of God. It's not the potential of maybe possibly what God will eventually develop into. All the fullness of God dwelled in that baby, in that moment. Because Christ, God through Christ chooses to sum up everything because it's through Christ that he created everything. And what Paul is telling us with this kind of cosmic picture of the nativity story is that the universe has a trajectory. We know that it's going somewhere. God has a plan and he's executing on it. And it's so hard for us to recognize this sometimes in our limited human perspective because all we see is this moment in this place. We're so limited in our capacity to perceive the entire human story, but we so often make judgments out of how we choose to see and feel in this very moment. But the good news of the hope of Christ is that we don't have to wish for a possibility. There's a vast difference between Christian hope and conventional hope. And most of us have been raised with conventional hope. And this is how conventional hope works. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope that Jake wants to take us to the restaurant that I want to go to tonight after church. That's what we think of when we think of hope. It's a wish. It's a possibility. Wouldn't it be nice if this thing happened? But maybe it won't. And so when we come into the scriptures and we see the word hope, that's what we think is happening. Wouldn't it be nice if God actually showed up? Wouldn't it be nice if maybe all of those things that Jesus said came true? Wouldn't it be nice if the Holy Spirit would reveal himself to me and speak to me? And we have such a flimsy, conventional understanding of hope. But that hope has very little to do with what we find in Scripture because Christian hope is something else entirely. Christian hope is the confidence of future events. Christian hope is rooted in the belief that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and in the end, God will get what God wants, and that we know that the story is being written in such a way that we will arrive at that future vision that's laid out for us in Revelation and in other places. But our hope, our Christian hope in that regard then, is a test of our faith. That kind of Christian hope, the audacity to, the audacity of hope. (laughs) That's Barack Obama's book. The tenacity to have that kind of hope is a real test of faith. Because we have to say, do I believe that God will do what he promised? Do I believe that God is actually going to follow through on the things that he said? You know, and that's true for us as a human species when we look back at Scripture but it's actually true for you and I on a personal level. It's a test of faith that I know many of you in this room and I know the things that that you feel like the Lord has spoken over you the past few years and, and sometimes there's a level of dread or confusion because you're not seeing those things come to fruition and you have to choose in that moment, do I believe that God is real and he's living and he's working? Do I believe that God is gonna make good on those promises or is he not moving fast enough? Or has God abandoned me? Has God forgotten about me? 
These kind of questions that we would never consciously admit to ourselves or to our community, but a lot of times we live out of those. You know, I think each of us, we have kind of a ground zero for how we're oriented when it comes to time. Some of us are very past-oriented people. We're always dwelling on what happened and thinking, wouldn't, this, wouldn't it be great if this had happened or that I had said that differently? Some of us are all about the present moment and we're just choosing from, from second to second, minute to minute, how we live our lives. Some of us are very future-oriented. How many of you in here, the anticipation of the thing is sweeter than the thing itself? Like you're constantly kind of disappointed because you're so excited about that meal or that movie or that event or whatever, and you get there and you're like, eh, it's all right. You know, we each have this different orientation to time. And I think that really speaks into how we interact with hope. So for me, I have a future vision is actually really hard for me. Well, at, not long after I first moved here, I went to, out to dinner with some of the elders and uh, Ann Alexander asked me, what are your dreams and aspirations? And I said, I don't have any. I said, I'm here. Like this wasn't the plan. I was supposed to be a high school teacher. You know, I was supposed, and I was living in Nashville and that was gonna be the thing. And now I'm just here, so I don't know. Like we'll just see what happens next. You know, and a lot of times that, uh, weird hopelessness that sometimes I live in has worked in my favor because I'm always surprised by what the Lord's doing. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, didn't anticipate that. Like, everything's open-handed to me. But so often what I recognize in my life is that I tend to just let things happen around me. Like, I just, I'm just witness, like a, a passive witness to my own life. And doubly so for the future. There's lots of things that could happen in my future, maybe, and maybe They'll just arrive there. You know, I talk about how sometimes we're convenient Calvinists. We believe in God's sovereignty and his ability to do whatever he's going to do because it actually excuses us from having responsibility for our own lives and having to actually co-labor with God and to see things come to fruition. And that's kind of my MO. That's, that's my testimony, you know? I just let things happen around me. And, and it's God's grace that sometimes he does that for me. You know, sometimes he meets me in my deficiencies and he kind of makes decisions for me. And I'm like, great, thank you. Can I never make a decision ever again? That would be nice. But for a couple of years now, I've been praying uh, kind of two things that I didn't initially mesh. One of them was that God would begin to speak to me through dreams, like real sleeping at night dreams. How many of you, uh, God speaks to you through dreams? A couple of you, good. If your hand's not raised, start asking him for that, okay? It's a really powerful way for God to speak to you. So that doesn't happen to me so often, so I started to ask God for dreams. The second thing was that I asked God to help me make a really big decision because I'm terrible at making decisions. So I said, God, if you can just make this one for me, that'd be swell. Well, over the summer, it maybe happened. I'm not gonna tell you what it is because it's my business. You can fill in the gaps. Whatever, you, whatever your imagination tells you that I really need, that's what it is. And so, over the summer, I had this dream, and it was vivid. It was this lucid dream, and I woke up, and it was, you know, there's some dreams you wake up, and they're disturbing, but in a very dream state. You're like, oh, that was totally a dream, that was super weird, whatever. This disturbed me for half a day, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then I began to, to, to question, like, oh, maybe this is those things that I've been praying about, that God would give me dreams, and that God would make this very big decision for me. And then the biggest question came, okay, do I believe that God is real? Because that's really what we're talking about when it comes to vision and hope, right? Do I believe that God is real? Because there's all of these ways in which God speaks to me that have kind of become my new normal. But then there's this like next 
platform of him speaking where you're like, okay, I, if I step out on this thing, I'm really saying all of this stuff is real and it's not just some bearded fairy that lives in the sky that helps me to sleep at night. This is something that's actually real. And it's shaken me to the foundation. I'm not even through it yet. I'm still kind of processing this thing and saying, okay, God, if you are real and if you are doing what I've asked you to do, then I need to actually co-labor and partner with you to see this thing come to, to fruition in my future and to have that kind of vision. And I think that's often where we get hung up when it comes to hope. We are afraid of hope. We're afraid of hope. We're terrified of it. Why is this? I think it's because so many times you and I have been disappointed. When we're little kids, we had hope, we had dreams, we had aspirations, and then things happened to us and we gradually shut down hope. In fact, many of us, we just became very cynical. We just became very skeptical because that's a survival technique. It's easier to maneuver through life in that way. But for many of us, we're afraid to hope because of impatience, because God has spoken something over us and we've never paused to reflect and say, how long am I willing to wait to see the promises of God come to fruition in my life? Because how long did Abraham have to wait for Isaac? How long did David have to wait to actually become king? Because when we start thinking about patience when it comes to God fulfilling promises in our lives, we have to say, how important is it to see that thing come to fruition? Or would I rather just give up on it? Because I don't wanna wait that long, because it's not actually worth it. And so we're so afraid to hope. Well, what happens after prolonged fear of hope is that we actually enter into hopelessness. But we have to name our present hopelessness so we can offer it to Jesus for redemption. And I believe there are two kinds of hopelessness in the world. The first is called anxiety. And this is how I define anxiety right now. Anxiety is the fear that tomorrow will not come. Tomorrow won't be here. So anxiety is a very future-oriented fear that stems out of hopelessness, that all of this could go away tomorrow, whether it's on a global level or a personal level, and that's where we get into the what-ifs. What if I get on this airplane and it crashes? What if, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un fires off a nuclear warhead tomorrow and he blows up the East Coast? All of those kind of things, that's this anxiety, this hopelessness that essentially the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And we get, we get stuck in that fear that maybe tomorrow won't come. Maybe that thing's just never gonna happen. But there's a second kind of hopelessness called despair. And if anxiety is the fear that tomorrow won't come, despair is the fear that tomorrow is going to be exactly like today. Very different. I was uh, teaching on anxiety a couple years ago and, and someone came up to me and very bravely confessed that I don't have a problem with anxiety, I have a problem with despair. I'm not worried that tomorrow won't come, I'm worried that tomorrow will come, but it's gonna be exactly like today. And some days I actually wish maybe tomorrow it would be better if tomorrow didn't come. And you see where it is that hopelessness leads us to. It leads us to spiritual, mental, physical death. Because if we don't have hope, the story ends and we begin to die. And so despair is the fear that tomorrow is just gonna be like today. Nothing is going to change. The story will not move forward. We get stuck in a loop. And both of these forms of hopelessness, they hold us back from the true hope for redemption. 
And it's important that we are able, again, through the Holy Spirit, to name the hopelessness in our lives right now in the present moment if we truly want to have a Christian hope that gives us a vision for what God wants to do in the future. And so we're going to enter uh, into a second moment of just inviting the Lord to illuminate something to us. And so if the first one was about redeeming the past, this is about blessing the present moment. We're going to ask the Lord this question, where am I dealing uh, in hopelessness today? Maybe it's a promise that you haven't seen fulfilled. Maybe it's like this one relationship or this avenue in your life. Maybe it's this event that you've been waiting for that you've kind of given up uh, on, on seeing it come to fruition. But each of us, there's some little place in our lives where hopelessness is holding us back. And I believe that the Lord wants to do business with that. So again, just get in a posture uh, to receive. And just open yourself before the Lord. Again, there is no condemnation. There is no guilt. There is no shame. There is only the light of Christ that sets us free. So Holy Spirit, again, right now, would you anoint us, open our ears to hear your voice, open our eyes to see you move in and through our stories. Holy Spirit, would you begin to name in each one of us, what hopelessness looks like. If there's, a, if there's even an iota of anxiety or despair in us, a particular part of our story, would you name that? Would you call it out of the darkness into the light so that we can see it and in turn hand it over to you for redemption? Father, I thank you that you are the God who turns curses into blessings, that you sow hope where there is none, that you seek to set us free now so that we can enter into the the certain future of your new world. Amen. So God redeems our past. He blesses our present, and then he gives us the future vision. I only want to dwell on this for just a moment, but I want to read a couple verses from Revelation 21. This is the, kind of the end of the book. This is the vision that John the Revelator has of this is what it looks like with the new heavens and the new earth when God has finished his rescue project. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The God who makes all things new. I was meditating on hope several years ago, and the Lord gave me uh, yet another vision. Again, this doesn't happen to me super often, but he gave me this vision of what hope is. The traditional Christian symbol for hope is an anchor. 
And I'd always imagine, you know, an anchor kind of drops down from the boat and lands, you know, in the seabed, and that's how it holds the boat in place. And so for me, hope had always seemed like something that's just kind of right here. It's in this moment here, I'm stuck in it. But I was meditating on hope, and the Lord gave me this vision. He showed me kind of something very similar to what we find in the end of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, where the new Jerusalem descends from the sky, where creator and creation are reunited, and everything is put back to the way that God intended for it to be. And what the Lord showed me in this vision was the anchor was actually rooted in that future vision of his kingdom. And there was this little rope kind of coming all the way back into the present moment. And I was sitting in this little boat that was attached to this rope. And I was being tossed back and forth by the waves of uncertainty and unbelief and and not really knowing what's happening around me. But all the while, this anchor was reeling me in a little bit more each and every day. And as he brought me deeper into that future vision, the less the boat started to rock. Again, we're so limited in our perspective of what God's doing because we're only looking at the waves right around us in this moment, saying God must not be doing anything. This is a hopeless scenario. I'm gonna be lost in this. But I love that the Lord gave me this vision because he's actually saying this thing, that it's the God of the past who redeems our stories, the God of the present who chooses to raise us out of hopelessness, is also this God of the future who calls back into the present and says, I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. He looks at all those moments in your story. He looks at all those moments in your past, and he says, I can do something with that. I can rescue that. I can redeem that. I can set you free from that. I can make it all new. Do you believe in the restoration of all things? Not some things, not just the good things, Not just the nice things, not just the presentable things, but all things. Personally, for us communally, for us globally, and for us historically. We need God to give us a vision of everything new to lead us into the future. So as we're continuing on in worship, this is kind of where I want us to sit, is being open-handed before the Lord and asking him to give us a, a future vision And we're gonna kind of hone it in specifically like this. What will I look like when God has finished what he has started? What am I going to look like when God has finished what he started? When I arrive on those heavenly shores, when I witness the new heavens and the new earth, when I see creator and creation fully sewn back together, what am I going to look like? And we're gonna allow that vision of the future to speak back into the present moment and give us the courage that we need to move forward. So I wanna invite you to stand with me, please. And I'm gonna pray, and I've actually asked some of our leaders to go and and stand in the back, and if the Lord is really bringing something up within you, whether it's about your past, something you're struggling with in the present, or just a hopelessness that you have for the future, these are people that want to lay hands on you. They wanna bless you and they wanna pray for you um, to kind of clear the space uh, for God to, to really speak. But for the rest of us, we're going to worship together. We're gonna sing these songs of hope and believe that as we sing these songs over ourselves, we're telling one another the story of God all over again. And it's doing something within us. It's lifting us up in faith. And we're actually singing it over one another and it's doing the very same thing. 
but let's worship the God of hope, the God who redeems our past, who blesses the present and gives us vision for the future. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, in this season that we get to focus in on that moment that Jesus was born in the image of an infant, everything was redeemed. Everything was reclaimed. All of the good moments and the bad moments. Everything that we want to remember and everything that we want to forget, all of it is summed up in Him. In Christ alone is our hope. Lord, I don't want anybody to leave here tonight still struggling with any place of hopelessness. So Holy Spirit, we give you permission to minister to us as we minister to God on His throne. Do whatever you want to do. Say whatever you want to say. Give us the confidence to receive it from you that it is actually you speaking to us in real time. It is actually you calling to us from this future certainty that all shall be made well, that there shall be no more tears, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, that you call back into this moment, I'm making all things new. Thank you, Father. Thank you that we have the opportunity to witness to your redemptive mercy. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship and feel free to move if you want prayer. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.